Well, good morning again. We are going to be in Luke 15 today. Luke 15, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke 15. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible maybe in a seat in front of you underneath, uh, somewhere around there. We'd love for you to have one. Uh, We're going to be in Luke 15. We've been studying through the parables. Uh, It's been great to think about Jesus' parables. He's a master storyteller, and he uses these obvious, clear, plain Understandable stories in real life, parables that we would all get, earthly examples that explain these heavenly spiritual truths that we cannot see as easily. And so we're now in a series of parables he gave in Luke 15. He gave three parables. They're famous. They're popular. Uh, The parable we're looking at today, we started last Sunday, and it's one of the most popular parables there is, uh, one of the most popular stories in the world And so uh, it should be familiar to most of us. As we get prepared for it, I thought I'd uh, begin with this story because it's related. Uh, This week, uh, my wife and I went to a football game. And uh, it was on Thursday. There was these two teams. One's mascot was uh, a lion. The other's mascot was the mouse from Chuck E. Cheese. Uh, (laughs) And it was really good. It was these two teams, the Lions and the Chiefs. Uh, It was an NFL game. And... uh, Ever since we moved to Kansas, we've, been want, we've enjoyed watching the Chiefs. We never really got into sports before this, but we got into the Chiefs, and it was fun. So bucket list item, let's go see the Chiefs. Well, you may not know this, but my parents were born and raised in Detroit, and so um, I grew up uh, loving the Lions, and so I thought, well, let's go see the Chiefs and the Lions for, for two reasons. Uh, one, because it was a family thing, like my family, my family back from Michigan, they really liked the Lions. The other is, is we wanted to go uh, to a game where we knew the Chiefs would win. So we thought, <laughs> this, is a sure, this is a sure bet. We get there, we sit, um, I don't know, like in, in science in like high school where you learn the stratosphere, the atmosphere layers, but we were at like one of the top ones. It's like hard to breathe where we were. And... Um, we were sitting next to this guy that the best way to describe, he was animated. He was very animated. Um, he was drinking animated juice. Uh, he was very, very animated. Uh, vaping some animation uh, vape. Anyway, very excited he was. And, um, well, I'm sorry if you guys didn't get to see the game yet. The Chiefs lost. It's just, a, you know, it confused everyone. Anyway, they lost. And uh, this guy was so mad. He was so angry. And he started shouting to the Lions fans. There were so many Lions fans there, way more than I thought. I mean, like over 30%. There there were patches of blue throughout the entire stadium. And uh, he's like yelling to the Lions fans around, oh, this doesn't matter, we'll be back, blah, 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 all these reasons, excuse, excuse. But you could tell he was really proud of the Chiefs, really proud. And it just hurt him deeply that the Lions won. And I think it hurt a lot of people because we were leaving. Uh, it only takes about five minutes to leave the stadium, and it takes about an hour and 45 minutes to leave the parking lot. And uh, we get, we're leaving the stadium, and uh, there's this round funnel, tunnel type thing that you walk down one of the gates, and there's an aluminum siding on the side. Well, the Lions fans decided, well, we're going to capitalize on this. You know, this is like their Super Bowl. So, like, we won. And uh, they start banging on the side going, uh, let's go, Lions. Anyway, they started doing this. Well, the Chiefs didn't particularly, the Chiefs fans didn't, didn't love that. They didn't really enjoy that as much as they did. And so they started screaming back, zero Super Bowls. 
Anyway, it was really funny. But it got me thinking. It got, it got me thinking of this sermon. Really, it did. It, everything, I think about the sermon all week long, all day long, morning, noon, and night. It got me thinking. The issue with this whole scenario was pride. There was a lot of pride going on. And uh, it's shocking how this famous parable has a lot to do with pride. Pride. I want you to keep that in mind because it's easy to imagine that we don't relate to either of the two sons. And if that's your position, I just want to I just want you to consider that you may be closer to the older son than you think if that's how you feel about it. And this has so much to do with pride. So, the parable of the lost sons It begins in the context of Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. I'll read it to you. I know I've been over this before, but let's read it again. It's good to remember the context. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him, and the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So you have this scenario which when Jesus addresses it, he addresses it as a lost problem. These people are lost. But these people aren't just the tax collectors and sinners. We find out the the Pharisees and Sadducees are also lost. No one would disagree with that. Any Bible study you go to in almost any denomination, the Pharisees, Jesus considered them as lost. How they were lost was a little bit different than these tax collectors and sinners, these wayward, rebellious kids. They were lost and didn't know it. They were blind, and they were partially blinded by their pride. They thought they were righteous because of their actions, and you can see that all throughout the New Testament. So they're lost and don't know it. The sinners, on the other hand, are lost and aren't worth it. No one cares about them. No one wants to go out and seek them and find them. No one thinks that they're worth fraternizing with and eating with. This is part of their problem. He's welcoming them and eating with them. So there's a lost problem, and Jesus wants to address it. So he gives three parables. The first two we went through the first week, the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. And in that parable, these are valuable items to people that everybody and anybody would understand, a man and a woman. They would understand the value of these things. And the idea is someone needs to seek and save these things, save the sheep, find the lost coin. But this third parable is different. This third parable gets personal. It talks about our children. gives an illustration of a father dealing with children that are lost. And you see the first son is the rebel son. And we talked about this last week, restoring the rebel. And just for context, these points that we went over last week, when they insist on leaving, let them leave. The father lets the first son go, and it's shocking because most people would say, I might let him leave, But I ain't dividing up my estate and giving him his share as if I already died. But that's what the father does. He loves his son. And he lets him leave. And there's a principle in here in which when they insist on leaving, when rebels insist on leaving, you have to let them leave. Now, in the Old Testament, God represented or demonstrated this really well. And you you read this in every prophet there is in the Old Testament. When his people were consistently and defiantly determined to go to false gods, idols, eventually God let them go. If you read Romans chapter 1, after Paul talks about this gospel I'm not ashamed of, what does he tell us about? He tells us about how people 
were uh, enthralled and, and inflamed with their own lust. And how did God punish them? He gave them what they wanted. You want pleasure? You want your idols? Go ahead. And so God has demonstrated this when they insist on leaving them, or on leaving, they want to rebel, let them leave. And this is an example to us if we have wayward children or grandchildren. So hard to let them leave, but even God demonstrates how to do this. Now, we don't want to make the two mistakes. The two mistakes are the two extremes. You don't want to raise the bar too high, like in the New Testament. You exasperate them. They give up. They can't do it. They can't meet your expectations. God doesn't treat us this way. His burden is, is, is light. His yoke is not heavy. He loves us. It's not a burden to us. He doesn't raise the bar too high. And he also, the other extreme, doesn't stick his head in the sand and turn a blind eye and say, oh, you want to sin? That's fine. He does not leave us in our sin either. He rebukes us. He corrects us. He, he teaches us. He, there is a standard. There is a bar. And he, he shares that with us. And so as parents, as grandparents, as leaders, as disciple makers, if they're just going to insist on rebelling, at some point you have to let them go. But while they're with you, don't raise it too high and don't turn a blind eye. That's part of the, the wisdom in the passage. The second thing is when things get tough, let them hit bottom. This was really hard. Uh, being in addiction recovery, this has been helpful for me. You cannot solve their crisis. You cannot fix it for them because you will allow them to live in their sin. It, we, we learn about this from the first pages of the whole Bible. You have Adam and Eve, they rebel, they sin, and what does God do? He has that cherubim, that, that angel, I'm sorry, with the fire, and he kicks them out of the garden. Why? He tells us. It's in the passage, so that they will not eat from the tree of, uh, of life. He doesn't want them to live forever in their sin. They have to deal with the consequences of their sin. If you let them live in the garden as sinners forever, there's no salvation, there's no redemption, there's no reconciliation. They're just forever living in their sin, like the demons. God doesn't want that. You have to let them go. You have to let them hit, uh, hit rock bottom. Uh, he wanted to let them go. They had to learn the consequences of their sin, and, and we learn that through the pages of Scripture. You have to let people learn for themselves, I don't want idols, I want God. I don't want my sin, I want God. Until they repent inwardly, you can't move them. It's like a, it's like a you know, stubborn mule. The harder you push, the more they dig their heels in. You're not going to move them. And then the third, when they come back, though, when they repent, run to greet them. Mercy, grace, compassion needs to be there when they truly repent. Not when they're coming for a handout, but when they're coming home. When they're coming to be in the right place, in the right relationship. Run to greet them. And that's part of the principle. Well, you would almost think this is the end of the story. And what's interesting is, if Jesus stopped the parable right here, would anybody have said anything about the older brother? No. He's a throwaway at this point. Jesus could have been done with the parable with this younger son that was rebellious, but that's just the first half of the story. The other half we're going to cover today, and it's about the self-righteous son, the older son. And Jesus teaches us principles about how to deal with uh, the son. So we're going we're gonna to start back up. Uh, we're going to pick back up when the younger son rebels or returns home with his plan, you know, he has his plan to pay back the dad, and uh, this is where we'll pick up in verse 21. Luke 15, verse 21. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, 
Important note here, this is a representation of repentance. This is him repenting. I've sinned against God. I'm not even worthy to be your son. There's some truth in that. He's not worthy. He, he cannot earn it anymore, and he's repented. Uh, you know, some of us have been or currently are like this younger son. We, we've rebelled. We, we want everything that God has to offer. We want all the blessings. We want the rewards. We want the comforts. We want God to heal. We want God to answer our, our prayers, but it's not because we want God the Father. We just want blessings. We want the stuff, just like the younger son. It's not that he wanted his dad to die. He just wanted his stuff now. And so some of us have been like that. We want our independence. We want our autonomy. We want to live our life our own way. We don't want to remain under the authority and dependence of the Father. But praise God, just as in this parable, not all stay that way. Not everybody stays a rebel forever. And look at God's response. It's represented in the Father in verse 22. But the Father told his servants, quick. I love that. Quick. Have you ever... Have you ever watched two people, and when one offends the other, it gets heated, and someone wrongs someone, and you think, oh, I don't know what's going to happen. And then, by the grace of God, the other person who, who did the wrongdoing, the one who was the enemy, the wrong one, they come back and they say, I'm sorry. Have you ever seen a scenario where the one that got wronged, the one that was hurt, I'm not ready to forgive you yet. I don't want to talk about it. I'm not ready yet. And, and you almost want to be like, don't let the sun go down on your anger. You better, you know, God forgive you. I mean, you don't do that. Don't ever do that, especially in marriage. Never works. <laughs> Never works. God is not like that. In all of Scripture. Now, I've read Jeremiah. There's been times where God says, don't even try praying to me. The consequences are in stone. This is going to happen, right? I'm taking you guys out. That happens. However, those people, the Judeans at the time and Jeremiah, the, the ones that were taken captive to Babylon, they were not repenting. But everywhere in the Bible, as soon as someone turns to God, immediately, it's this word, quick, right away. God doesn't have to cool down he doesn't have to think about it. He doesn't have to internalize it. He doesn't have to think of all the good things. He doesn't have to weigh pros and cons. Immediately, God forgives. And, um, and I just love that. That's, just, that's not even part of the sermon. That's just the word quick. He says, quick, the father told the servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. The, the robe is like caring for him, the robe that probably belonged to his dad. The, the ring is like him being reinstated as a son. This was like a sign. It's like a, it's like a symbol, like your last name can be my last name again. You're welcome back in the family. That, that ring held legal significance. It's how they would sign contract and do things. That ring was more than just uh, jewelry. That was a symbol of you're back in the family, a family seal. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Now, I don't think the sandals are very sealy, but I think it's just nice. He probably didn't have shoes. And he's like, put sandals on his feet. Then he goes even farther, further. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast. Because the son of mine was dead 
and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Have you ever known a rebel, a backslider, whatever you want to call him? Have you ever known one to return? How great that is. How much the parents, the grandparents, you name it, the loved ones. There's so much joy. Let's celebrate. Now, this almost seems like the end of the story. Jesus could have finished the parable here, as I said before. However, the other son, the older son, is the other half of the story. He's like the Pharisees and Sadducees. He's, he represents the self-righteous one, and so Jesus continues this parable because he's not just wanting to teach the tax collectors and sinners, the disciples. He wants the Pharisees to understand the heart of the Father, who God is, the truth about the kingdom. And with the self-righteous, this older son, the self-righteous, we see the Father seeking him out to reason with him, which is the second half the second act, you could say, of the parable. Reasoning with the self-righteous, number two. Now, his older son was in the field. That already, he's in the field. You know what's cool about this guy? He's exactly where he needs to be. He's in the right place. He's doing the right things. He's honoring the dad. He's doing the work. He's in the field. This is a good son. He's doing the right things. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Now just pause there for a second. Imagine you're there, okay? Imagine we're all out in the field, and we're watching this older son. He's dirty. He's been working all day. He's, I mean, he's, he's tired. He's sweaty. He's got his work clothes on. He starts getting closer to his house and he hears music and dancing. Now, how do you hear dancing? You don't hear dancing, you hear music. You could see dancing. Well, in this culture, when they danced a community dance, when they were community uh, rejoicing and celebration, they would do shouts of joy at particular times. It's kind of like songs that we all know. If I were to start the song, Happy birthday to you. I know I can't sing, but anyway, you guys would be able to finish the song. You know the song. Well, their dances would be coupled with shouts of joy as part of their celebration. So he's getting close to the house, and he's hearing the music. They don't have radios. They have to play, they have to play instruments. There's music. There's musical instrument. There's uh, musicians there. The dad has, has killed the fattened calf. This isn't just for the table at home. This isn't like, let's open the fridge Oh, what kind of leftovers do we have? Let's throw this in the fire. This is, I'm inviting the whole community to come to this festival. It was very expensive. It was a big meal. So you had neighbors that played instruments there. They had their instruments. They're singing. You had other people there dancing and making these shouts of joy. And the older son's getting close. And he's looking off in the distance. He sees his dad's property, his property. He sees the house. He hears the music of dancing. He, hears the, he sees the lights. Now, what is he thinking? Now, it's been many years since his younger brother left. Is he thinking his younger brother's there? No. You know what he's thinking? Am I getting an early promotion? I, I, I can't think of any other reason why my dad would kill the fattened calf. This is a very valuable thing. This is like breaking the peg, piggy bank. 
I can't think of any other good reason why my dad would use our valuables and invite everybody in the community to come over unless there's a celebration. It's not my birthday. It's not his birthday. It's not one of the festivals. You know, the Jews had the seven festivals and and, a handful of them, they would come to Jerusalem. It's not one of the festivals. Hmm, what is going on? I think my dad's ready to honor me. You know, I've been in the field this whole time. I've been working hard. I've been doing all the right things. I'm not like the guy who won't be named. Not like him. So he gets excited. Hey, 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 uh, hey, Charlie, come here, come here. One of the servants. Come here. Probably not Charlie. That's not a very Jewish name. Hey, Joseph. Joseph, come here. Joseph. He comes in. He's like, hey, hey, uh, I'm just curious. Uh, what's, uh, what's all this uh, excitement about? What's all this, what's all this dancing? And the response that the servant gives is not what he wants to hear. He begins with, your brother. Not what he wanted to hear. Your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Not what he wanted. Could you imagine how his heart sunk in that moment? The opposite of what he was hoping for, the opposite of what he would expect, the opposite of what he feels like is right and just and fair, like the lion's winning. Could you imagine, like, this isn't right. This makes no sense to me. Now pause for a moment. How did the father fund this festival? How did the father feed all these people? Well, with the fattened calf. Where did the father get a fattened calf? Well, let's just think about the story. The father had two sons, one of them, total rebel, leaves. He had to sell part of his estate. He broke it up into thirds. He gave one-third to the younger son. The two-thirds he has left over ultimately belongs to who? The older son. The older son's sitting there, and he's thinking, I'm going to have to foot this bill. This isn't my dad's. This is mine. This belongs to me. He starts getting angry starts burning up inside. That no-gooder should have never come back. If he did come back, he shouldn't be having my stuff that I earned, that I deserve. Verse 28, then he became angry and didn't want to go in. How many family fights have been like this? They're angry and they won't participate. So his father come out, comes out and and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father. We don't know what his father said in the beginning. We don't know what he said. All we know is he comes out, he tries to plead with him. Older son's not having it. The The older son says, look, I have been slaving many years for you and I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours... Notice what he doesn't call him, when my brother. He doesn't say my brother. When this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. And this is where the self-righteous exposes what's really going on in their heart. And there's three principles here in this one parable that we see what is going on with the self-righteous. 
What happens to the self-righteous, the proud, the ones who are like this older brother, that, like the Pharisees and Sadducees? What's wrong with them? What's going on with them? And I want to say, this illustrates the self-righteous in any situation. This could be you with your coworkers. This could be you with your family members. This could be you with your spouse. So I want you to pay attention to these three characteristics of the older son because they represent any of us when we are being self-righteous. Number one with the self-righteous, their pride strips them of compassion. It says in verse 28, then he became angry and didn't want to become, go in. Why was he angry? Did he love his brother? No. He didn't love his brother. He was upset with his brother. Now, you might say he should be upset with his brother. His brother did a horrible thing. He did. His brother did a horrible thing. But he doesn't love his brother. You know why else he was probably angry? If his brother comes back and gets the ring, what does that mean when his father dies? He's got to redistribute all of his assets and divide it into three parts again. This is cutting into his share. This son is angry because now in order for his brother to be fully restored and reconciled, that means it's also going to cost him. And the self-righteous don't want to pay for other people's sin, period. doesn't matter what Jesus has done for them. They don't want to do it for others. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, look, I've been slaving many years for you. Listen to the pride. It's first person the whole way through. I have slaved many years for you. I have never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a goat. Do you hear the pride and the me and the I in the first person? But when this son of yours, doesn't even call him his brother, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, when he, when he came, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him, which is really my calf. That, that belongs to me. I'm the good son that's been here doing the hard work. The farm goes to me. How could you give it to him? It's very personal. Jesus is bringing this up. It reminds me of the parable of the uh, Pharisee and the tax collector in, in Luke chapter 18. I'll turn there. It'll be on the screen. You're welcome to turn there in your Bibles if you wish. Luke 18 is probably just a few pages over to the right. Luke 18 verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Sound familiar? Is this not the older brother? Is this not the Pharisees in Luke 15? Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Just those words, they're a cancer to the Christian. I thank you that I'm not like them. I'm sure glad as I'm praying to myself, I'm not like those sinners, especially the tax collectors. Is it possible that we could have this disease? That we could have the attitude... Well, I'm glad I'm not like so-and-so. Do you think you're not like so-and-so? Are you more spotless than they are? 
Maybe Jesus didn't really have to die for you. He just had to kind of die for you, but he really had to suffer and die for them. Maybe it didn't cost as much for Jesus to save you as it did them. I thank you that I'm not like other people. Horrible words, evil words, words of the devil, of his tongue, the liar, the accuser. You're not like other people. You're better. You're better than other people. No, you're not. You're not better. Jesus is better. And when you focus on Jesus and believe in your heart that he is the only one that deserves the glory and the honor, and without him you would be dead in your trespasses and sins, and your unrighteousness would earn you a place in hell and into the lake of fire where you would burn forever, if you believe the truth of what God has shared with us, if you believe that, you won't say these words. I thank you that you're not like us. That would be your prayer. Have mercy on me, the sinner. I don't deserve heaven. And would you use me to help them? What can I do to help them? Whatever you've taught me, help me to teach them. Not because I'm better than them, but because your truth is better. Because you are better. I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. That sounds a lot like verse 29. I have been slaving many years for you, and I have never disobeyed your orders. Doesn't that sound the same? These are synonyms. This is the same issue. Their pride strips them of compassion. Secondly, their anger keeps them from joy. Verse 28 in Luke 15, their anger keeps them from joy. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. He didn't want to go in. He couldn't enjoy it. Have you ever been proud and unforgiving and unrelenting with someone else that when they are doing well, when something goes good for them, you can't even smile, you can't enjoy it, you can't rejoice? That as soon as something good for them happens, that the next comment in your mind, well, well, but this, and I don't think it's really real, and I don't think it's good enough, and it's not like me. You may not say those words, but you've, you have that attitude. The self-righteous because of their anger. Now, they're angry because they don't have compassion. They don't have compassion because they're proud. They're proud because they're focused on them. And it just steals all the joy and the good so that they can't enjoy anything. He wouldn't go into the house. It kept him from joy because he was angry. So his father came out and pleaded with him. And this brings up an interesting point when dealing with a self-righteous child. You may not have a rebel child that's totally run away. You might have a self-righteous child who says they're a believer, but it just feels so odd uh, compared to what's going on in their life. When they're too upset to come to you, and self-righteous people are always upset. They're always angry about something. They will complain about church. They'll complain about everything, everything. They are angry. You can tell they're angry. They're always angry because they're proud. They don't have compassion. They don't know how to enjoy what's good. They're too focused on them and their thoughts and their best and not other people's. What's interesting is when they're too upset to come to you, what the Father shows in this parable is you can go to them. And Jesus goes to them. As miserable as the Pharisees were, there were multiple times that Jesus took time out of his day to go to their house 
to go to their meeting, to go and meet with them because he loved them. When they're too upset with you, you could still go to them. Their pride strips them of compassion. Their anger keeps them from joy. And thirdly, and this is the hardest lesson to learn with the self-righteous, their obedience blinds them to reality. Now, I don't want you to hear me wrong. Obedience is not bad. Obedience is good. But what's true with the Pharisees and in the older son in this parable is how they view their obedience is what blinds them to reality. They're so focused on what they've done right that they can't see what they're doing wrong. Their obedience blinds them to reality. Here's what's crazy. The son is a good son, or was, obviously not in this moment, but the reason why he's not doing well in this moment is because he's so convinced about his own righteousness. I've never disobeyed you. I've slaved for you for many years. I've done the right things. I wasn't like the other brother. And technically, he's telling the truth. The problem is, it's not the whole truth. When it comes to the self-righteous, their obedience is a problem for them, not because obedience is bad, but because of how they look at their obedience. Verse 29, he replied to his father, look, I have been slaving many years for you. I have never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came who was devoured, you, you know, I read it, verse 31. Think, look at the, in the bottom, the bottom half, the, the father's response. Son, he said to him, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this, brother's of, this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now think about how the father's responding and how this relates to how the older son views his obedience. I want to give you three ways in which he's viewing his obedience, okay? Notice how his obedience is distorting his perception of three things, three ways, you could say, three ways. Number one, how he sees the Father. He says, look, me, 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 and you've never given me. Now, he's disrespecting his father. He's dishonoring him. He won't even go in the house. This is his act of rebellion. Now, he thinks he's justified because he's rebelling for the right reasons in his own mind. But how he views the father is, Dad, you're wrong. And as a matter of fact, you haven't done this for me, and really, you should do it for me and not him. It distorts how he views the father. The second way is it distorts how he views his stuff. See how he says, you never gave me a goat, and the father responds with, son, everything I have is yours. What the older son forgot, what he didn't see because he was so focused on his obedience and he was so angry at his brother and he was unforgiving, he lacked compassion, what he forgot is everything the dad owns, he owns. It belongs to him already, but he forgot that because of his pride. And the third is it distorts how he sees his brother. Notice in verse 30, but when this son of yours, and in, in verse 32, he doesn't say, this son of mine, what does he say? This brother of yours. Notice how he changes the phrase on purpose. Don't you know that this is your brother? This is your brother. You're called to love him. What is it? mean to love somebody? 
Does it mean to tolerate them? No. Does it mean to not be mean to them? No, that's not love. Not being mean to someone is not showing love. In, in 1 John chapter 4, I want to use these verses. There's so many others we can use, but I want to focus on 1 John chapter 4 and verse 20. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. Now, most of us would agree with that. And most of us would say, I don't hate my brother or sister, which is good. I hope you don't hate your brother or sister. But look how John defines hate. Pay attention to the verse. If you believe the, the word of God is inspired by God and every word matters, focus on the words. How, what does it mean to hate your brother or sister? John continues. For, and this word for is in there. He's explaining what this means to hate your brother or sister. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God in whom he has not seen. How does the Bible define hate? Not loving. Now this is huge when you mature to this point. In the New Testament, there is no black, white, and gray in the middle. Most people think love is right here, hate is over here, and then the middle is neutral. I just, I didn't do anything wrong to you. I, I wasn't unkind to you. I wasn't mean to you. I didn't hit you. I didn't yell at you. That's not love. To not love someone is to hate them, according to this verse. This is particularly true in marriage, and I am a young married man, so I've fallen in this area, and I want to I say this because it's biblical truth, and we need to hear it. Some of us are tempted to give our spouse the cold shoulder to be the silent treatment. Anybody ever hear the silent treatment? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? I want to really see a, a raise of hands. Do you know what I mean by silent? Okay, mostly women just raise their hand, which is an embarrassment to all you husbands who know exactly what I'm talking about. Why is your hand not up? Be honest with us. Let's be brothers in here. When you get upset with your spouse, what do you want to do? You can't be evil to them, so you ignore them. Just be silent, right? Guess what? That's not loving them. You know what the Bible calls not loving them? Hating them. You know what God thinks about a husband and his wife? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. When you are just simply, I'm not mean to her, I didn't say anything negative, I'm just being silent, I'm just ignoring her, guess what? You are sinning. You are hating your spouse. You're not loving them. And the Bible is crystal clear. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. Live with them in an understanding way. Understanding that they're going to have needs that you don't have. They're going to have different needs than you have. Love them. Silent treatment is not love. And don't give the excuse, well, I didn't want to do anything bad. That's like when little kids say, well, I didn't want to hit them, so I ran away. Okay, first of all, you shouldn't hit them anyway, and you can stay here and be a man and deal with it. Love is dealing with it. Jesus didn't come down to earth and say, I did, I, I just, I'm going to run away. I'm going to leave the cross. I know I'm harping on this, but there's so many married people in this room, and... Uh, 
we husbands can be the older brother and not even know it. And God wants to free us of that. Wives in this room, love your husbands. Loving is active. It's intentional. Loving isn't just, well, I wasn't mean to him. I didn't say what I was really thinking. I can't tell you how many times I've been in counseling sessions where the wife, well, I didn't say what I was really thinking, and I want to be like, listen, I'm not giving you a star for that, <laughs> right? He, he, he probably also didn't tell you what he was thinking. He still ain't, you know, he ain't getting cookies either. Like this, we can be like this older brother more than we might realize. We have this command from him. So this is a command from, from the Lord of heaven and earth, the creator of the universe, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. This is his command. The one who loves God must also love his brother and sister, period. Now, Jesus abruptly ends the parable. Verse 32, he says, but we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. It's a life or death situation. Why are you self-righteous when what's most important is your brother or sister? Why dig your heels in when what's most important is their life and not your comfort? I think Jesus wanted us to meditate on this parable. He ends it abruptly. It's kind of like the prophet Jonah. If you've ever read the prophet Jonah, you get to the very last verse. I think it's chapter 4, and you go, wait a minute. Is that the end? What happened? What did Jonah do? What did this person do? You want to know what happened. Jesus does that with this parable. He ends it abruptly. Why? He wants us to meditate on the two sons. What kept the younger son from the father? Well, his rebelliousness, his breaking the rules. I'm leaving. I'm out of here. And what's keeping the older son from the father? Why is the older son outside of the house and not with the father? It's his righteousness, his pride, his anger. Keeping the rules is what's keeping him out. And it's not that keeping the rules per se is wrong. It's his view on him keeping the rules. That's what's so detrimental. The younger son represents the traditional view of sin, breaking the rules. The older son represents the subtle distortion of sin. I think best said with the quote of the older son, I have been slaving many years for you. I have never disobeyed you. That's the distortion. You can be separated from God through immorality and atheism and rebellion and and backsliding. You could be alienated from God for that. Likewise, in the same way, you can be alienated from God through moralistic, religious pride. I'm a good doer. I do good things. I'm a good person. And good people don't go to heaven. Good people are not saved. Forgiven people are saved. Repentant people are. And that's the third lesson of the parable. Jesus gave his life to teach it. He didn't finish the parable in this teaching on purpose because he finished it on the cross. Look at verses 20 through 24, and let's think about how how similar it is to the book of Revelation. But the father told his servants, quick, 
Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. How similar is that to the book of Revelation? That Jesus did what the older son wouldn't do. That Jesus as the firstborn of creation. He wasn't created, but he's the firstborn. He's the heir. He inherited it. He earned it. Jesus gave up everything to seek and to save the lost. What the older brother should have done, what is different than the parable of the sheep and the coin, is no one's looking for the younger brother, and that's what the older brother should have done. Jesus is a better example. He finishes the parable by dying on a cross and rising from the dead, showing that I sacrificed everything, my entire estate, my very life, I humbled myself to seek and to save the lost. Jesus is like our older brother, the one we really needed to forgive us. He puts his robe of righteousness on us. He puts his seal, the seal of the Holy Spirit, on us like the ring. He puts sandals on our feet. He gives us a home. He prepares a place for us. Why? Because we earned it? Because we're good? No. It's because we needed someone to save us from our sins. Jesus finishes the parable with his life. And what he wanted for the Pharisees and the disciples and the tax collectors and the sinners was for them to recognize the Savior. Jesus did what no one in any real story does except for him. He's the one that saved us. So how do we, what do we do with that? First, we have to repent if we're like either of the two sons. If we're being rebellious or we're being self-righteous, we have to repent. Second is, we receive the invitation. The father goes out to both sons. He runs out to the rebel son as soon as he turns around, and he goes out of the house and goes to the older son and pleads with him, come in, everything I have is yours. You're my son. Let's enjoy this together. Your son was dead, now he's alive. He was lost, now he's fine. found. Enter into my joy is what the father's telling us. Repent and receive the invitation. And if you haven't yet, the gospel is, is simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. Our sin separates us and alienates us from God. We have a God who's our creator. He made us in his image to follow him, to obey him. Our disobedience breaks that relationship with him. And God had a plan from the very beginning before the foundations of the world were laid. God had a plan that he would send his son Jesus to the earth. This happened 2,000 years ago. He sent his son to the earth to live a perfect life, a sinless life. He never sinned. He died on a cross in our place, took the wrath of God. He died for our sins, and now we have a choice. If we just turn to him in repentance and faith, it's like two sides of the same coin. If you turn to God and say, God, I am a sinner. I am unrighteous. I am wrong. I've done the wrong things. I need you to forgive me, and only you can forgive me and you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, you put your faith in him, you will be saved. You will be saved if you turn to him in repentance and faith. And if you haven't done that, today's the day. The Bible says today's the day of salvation. You can be saved right now. You can pray right now with the rest of us. And if you have done that and you haven't shared that with people, I compel you, 
The world is not going to learn through osmosis salvation and Jesus, who he is. You have to go and tell the story of Jesus, that we have a creator God, our sin separates from him, he sent his son Jesus to die for us, and we have to turn to him in repentance and faith. Outside of that, there's no salvation. There's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. So if you've already done that, I want you to pray right now for those that haven't and for you to share it. And if you haven't done that yet, would you pray with me? I'm talking to any of you, even online, if you haven't prayed this prayer, you can pray this now if you mean it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending Jesus to seek and save the lost, to forgive us of our sins. You are the one and only God, our creator. We have sinned against you. I have sinned against you. Would you please forgive me of my sins? I turn to you in faith. Jesus is the only one that can save me. Would you save me? And if you've prayed that prayer, God has received you as a child. Father, for the rest of us, would you continue to tune our hearts to yours, that we would share the message, the good news, the love, the compassion, the mercy that you have. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.